So I look at every single one of those categories of mobility of migration and everything to electric VTOL aircraft and the impact that will have on the future of urban design, that is part of the individual experience of mobility in the future, as is, of course, climate migration fleeing countries where there is simply not a drop of water left. All of those are drivers of our future mobility, depending on who you are and where you are. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier weekly podcast that dissects the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and with rising nationalism spreading across the globe and geopolitical tensions between the United States and China, my guest today has a counterintuitive thesis that mobility is destiny after declaring the last time on this podcast that connectivity is destiny. We have Parag Khanna here today, a celebrated author with books, such as The Future is Asian, Connectography, and his latest book, Move. Congratulations on being named as one of the Financial Times' best political books of the year. Parag, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bernard. It's great to see you again. So it's been two years since we last spoke. Since our last conversation, we have the COVID-19 pandemic and the changing of US presidents from Trump to Biden. What have you been up to since we last spoke? Well, on the one hand, it's been two very short years. On the other hand, it's been two very long years. Normally, a lot less time would go by between trips, for example, that I've taken. And I've measured time much of my life by travel. And those of us, of course, who live in Singapore are accustomed to thinking of Changi Airport as a very convenient and easy jumping off point for the whole world and certainly for Asia. So that has been a novelty. Uh, but uh, I have realized that all of that time spent on logistics can very easily now go into productive work. So I finished this book and it was published. Uh, my company, FutureMap, worked with a lot of clients around the world, some of whom we had never met and still have not met. And perhaps most significantly, we also went very deep into product development and have launched now Climate Alpha. And Climate Alpha is a data-driven, an AI-driven platform, a SaaS tool that allows you to construct different scenarios for climate and other variables and measure or predict their impact on real estate values across many different asset classes. So that's been a deep tech product that we've been working on for some time and we're pleased to say that it's also now launched. So it's been a very productive pandemic for me, hopefully for you as well. So you have been both building and writing at the same time. Yes, but the difference, of course, between the two is that writing is a fairly sedentary and lonely process, whereas building is a team effort for sure, because I'm not a data scientist, but it requires management and coordination and shuttling between different teams and coordinating a lot. And of course, thinking about the product development and the science and the, all, everything from that through the business development. So that's been an incredible learning journey and a very pleasurable one, I must say. You have just came back from a book tour overseas. So how was the traveling experience like after these two years from the pandemic? It was actually fine. For one thing, the Changi user experience remained second to none. And then in places like Europe, where the vaccination rate is high and where they've preserved the sanctity of the Schengen Agreement, it was, in fact, very easy to move around within Europe. And then on the west coast of the U.S., where I also was for about two weeks, they have a very um, healthy sense of self-preservation. 
So the people in Silicon Valley in Los Angeles, you know, deem their lives to be superior to the rest of the world and therefore will take the utmost precautions. So you never felt that you were at any risk of catching COVID when you're in Los Angeles and San Francisco because they might as well be Singaporeans. They're so uh, hyper cautious. Which comes to the main subject of the day, which is on your new book, Move by Parakana, I think published by Simon & Schuster, right? So I want to start differently this time in discussing your new book, Move, with the start of your prologue, which asks a provocative question, where will you live by 2050? From the recent conference of the parties or COP26 meeting on climate change, what is your assessment on the different groups of people from frontier, emerging and advanced economies living in that time that you predict for 2050? So we want to believe when we have a gathering like COP26, that there has been a genuine global recognition that climate change is a global phenomenon, that it affects all of us, that we all must band together to confront it. But COP26 is yet another example of many, quite frankly, over the recent decades that demonstrate that we don't have an equal perception of the weight or importance even of a truly global phenomenon like climate change. And so the end result is a disappointing one, of course, for anyone who expected to see radical action on climate mitigation. So MOVE is really about climate adaptation on the assumption that climate mitigation will fail. Because as you can tell from the COP process, we're not doing a lot to really slow it down. And climate adaptation is a truly Darwinian process, you might say. So when you ask about specific countries and markets and geographies, what I needed to do in this book is to really divide the world up into climatic zones, cultural zones, zones of political stability and instability, zones of climatological livability and unlivability, but combine those variables together. Because what if a place is ecologically livable, but is politically unwelcoming, a place like Russia? What do you do then? How do you treat it, right? And what if a place is a, um, a, an economic success like the United Arab Emirates, but is scorchingly hot, where the wet bulb effect will be kicking in in maybe just a few years, and it will become unlivable to spend time outdoors uh, for half the year, and therefore you have to live in an air-conditioned dome. So adaptation takes so many different forms, and what I try to do is to document this adaptation process. So winners and losers are definitely what I get into in the book. In some sense, it's not only a guide for, um, you know, I mean, you can view it in many ways. It can be a guide to the livable geographies for real estate investors, but in many ways, I also focus on young people and their cultural preferences and where they might want to live in the future as well. So it's even a guide for remote workers as well. That actually assumes that there is no technological breakthroughs and based on what you see today due to climate change and also the real estate movements. Am I right to assume that? Uh, you know, I'm actually very t bullish on technology and I advocate not only for the Manhattan projects that people are talking about when it comes to decarbonization of industry and even geoengineering, I think, will have to be tried. So, but you can simultaneously be a technological optimist and still a pessimist about the implications of the chaos of the chain reactions that climate change has unleashed. 
Because remember that even if you have desalination plants, it doesn't really compensate for entire regions of the planet that have been stricken by drought and the water will never come back. You will still have some degree of rising sea levels baked in to our future no matter what. So you have to remember that even if you were to halt all emissions right now, the climate, as you know very well, is a complex system. And complex systems never return to what they were. They always evolve and unfold in new directions. And so the future climate, even if it is one in a low emission scenario, is still a different climate with a different climate niche for humankind than we have experienced before. So therefore, we still have to face the challenge of adaptation at the local level, and every society has to confront that. So you can be a technological optimist and in many ways a, a pessimist about the current state of our capacity to adapt humankind. And that is why I predict mass migrations. So working backwards till today, given that nationalism has been on the rise since the last decade and rising, geopolitical tensions across different nation states and the US. Do you think that we're moving towards an anti-globalization world? Or put it in another way, will nations restrict the movement flow of talent in fear of a more demanding populace? Well, let me give you a few anecdotes that help to flesh out what a diverse picture we have in the world today. On the one hand, we do talk a lot about the nationalism, xenophobia, populism that afflicts many countries in the West and even the East. But the countries that are the most nationalistic and the places that we hold up as the leaders that we hold up as the poster children for this kind of new nationalism, Modi of India, Putin of Russia, Erdogan of Turkey, we often forget that these countries are the top sources of emigration, emigration. Their people despise their regimes and really want to get out. So the notion that strongman populism is some kind of adorable phenomenon that makes itself the pillar of the global system is quite frankly fatuous because these are obviously failing societies that people are desperate to exit. So we have to bear in mind not to hold a regime and its people equal. Secondly, we can't generalize about the West as a coherent set of nations with coherent values and certainly with coherent immigration policies where populism is the driving norm, because that's not true. Canada, which is very much a stalwart member of the West the last time I checked, is by far the most generous nation in the entire world in terms of its inward immigration. It absorbs, it increases its population by 1% plus every single year. That's more than 400,000 people strictly through migration, inward immigration. And it does so with zero political backlash that anyone can notice. You can look at Germany which has, again, become a mass migration society, much more reluctantly than Canada, but a place where the most recent election, again, has witnessed a rejection of far-right parties. They've been you know, ejected, mostly, from the political scene in favor of a pro-migration center-left coalition. And then we can look at Britain. Britain after Brexit, Britain today is easier to move to. It is easier to migrate to the United Kingdom right now than it was before Brexit. So it begs the question, are they really populist and xenophobic? In fact, having learned the hard way that a poor immigration policy leads to monumental shortages of labor, 100,000 truck drivers that they're lacking, 50,000 nurses that they're lacking, that's an embarrassment and it has been self-destructive and they've learned, in fact, they have to open up. 
And how many countries, Bernard, had nomad visas before the pandemic, right? Saying that we explicitly want to target young people to come and live here, no matter what the public may think about this as an investment strategy. The answer is there were about two countries that had those policies in the year 2019. And here we are, Bernard, two years later, 75 countries have nomad visa policies. So I think we have to revisit our assumptions about this notion of a inexorable, global, nationalist, xenophobic, populist wave. Because the truth is that the places where that does exist are the places that are literally scaring away their own people. So they're doing the exact opposite of what they purport to be doing. And secondly, some of the most important societies in the world that are actually the role models are places that are massively importing people. So the main theme of the book is to establish that mobility is destiny, building on your earlier point of view that connectivity is destiny. Can you establish the baseline on what mobility means for individuals today in the context of the book? Yes, and this is a very important question that you raise because many people think about mobility in the context of a global book like this as being synonymous with international migration, but it's not. Uh, mobility is, in a way, relocation of any kind, or even constant movement from one place to another. Many of the heroes of this book are the South Asian construction workers who have been working in the Persian Gulf countries, and next they'll, they'll be there in Kazakhstan, and they'll be in Russia, and then they're in Canada, and they're filling labor shortages everywhere. The Filipino nurse I liken to the Lionel Messi of the healthcare profession. The most desirable young professional in the world is a young Filipino female nurse. The Japanese want her, the Chinese want her, the Emiratis want her, the Singaporeans want her, the Europeans, Canadians, Americans, everyone wants the Filipino nurse and they're not enough to go around. Uh, they can start to set their price and that's exactly what they're doing by gaming the market around you know, labor. So, so I actually celebrate you know, the bottom-up movement of hundreds of millions of people and the fact that the decimal place on the number of migrants every century is moving to the right. In previous centuries, you had millions and then tens of millions and then hundreds of millions in the 20th century. And in this century, Bernard, we will have over a billion people as migrants. So it is mobility in the context of individuals. It is the most consistent phenomenon that is the essence of what it means to be human is in fact to be mobile and to move. But it doesn't mean you've crossed a border because most migration, most relocation is domestic. Most people will never leave the country in which they were born. Chinese urbanization is the largest mass migration in human history. And of course, none of those hundreds of millions of Chinese ever left a country, their country. But yet their circumstances were radically altered for the better. So I look at every single one of those categories of mobility of migration and everything to electric VTOL aircraft and the impact that will have on the future of urban design, that is part of the individual experience of mobility in the future, as is, of course, climate migration fleeing countries where there is simply not a drop of water left. All of those are drivers of our future mobility, depending on who you are and where you are. One of my favorite parts of the book is the two by two diagram that you constructed on the two axes of migration and sustainability. And then you construct four potential scenarios in which path the world will take. There is the new Middle Ages, regional fortresses, Northern Lights or barbarians at the gate. What is the mental model behind these scenarios? And maybe you can elaborate a little bit about what these scenarios are. 
Sure. Well, let's first, uh, you know, sort of talk about scenario planning itself as an exercise and something that is a very important tool of visioning and strategy. And, you know, I, I don't want to be accused of being overly optimistic, you know, in terms of a bias, you know, advocating for peaceful resettlement of the human population is a normative aspiration of mine. But analytically, three of the four scenarios in this book are actually quite dire, quite negative. And in scenario forecasting, you should construct extrapolations from evidence, from trends that are visible today that are happening at the same time, but can take the world in different directions. And yet, even in those four very divergent futures, in fact, all of them are happening still. In order to be plausible, scenarios have to, in fact, have that element of realism. So let me let me talk about the four. The first is called regional fortresses, and I construct them on these axes of sustainability versus migration. So a higher sustainability but low migration scenario is kind of the world we're in today, where the wealthy countries of North America, Europe, and North Asia are investing a lot in renewable energy and in uh, water conservation and decarbonization of industry, but are very reserved about migration. But given the labor shortages, I imagine that their political views may change. So, you know, speaking to your previous question about, you know, xenophobia and so forth, the harder countries are hit by the reality of demographic deflation and labor shortages, the more their politics will change, not towards, uh, you know, more xenophobia, but the opposite, a reluctant but inevitable embrace of greater migration. So we have a number of high migration scenarios that I talk about, but they are unplanned and chaotic. One of them is called the New Middle Ages, which is very much a localized scramble, hunter-gatherer kind of society. Global supply chains have broken down. We're on our own to fend for ourselves and grow food. There is a, a lot of migration, but it's not very long distance, if you will. Then the other very negative scenario around low sustainability, but higher migration and higher chaos is the one I call barbarians at the gate. And you can see barbarians at the gate happening today. You can see it on the U.S.-Mexico border. You can see it in the Mediterranean Sea. You can see the fact that northern hemispheric states, western powers, are trying their hardest to reject uncontrolled mass migrations, whatever the cause, however legitimate. Uh, but they're not doing so in a coordinated fashion. And the only one scenario can be considered really positive in the book, and that's the one that I call Northern Lights. And that's the one in which we have high migration and high sustainability. And in that model, that's the model that I call civilization 3.0. And that's a human society that is mobile, in which mobility is enabled and celebrated and welcome. And it is also circular in the sense of more sustainable and renewable and so forth. So a mobile and circular humanity is civilization 3.0. And that is what we would need to become in order for this northern light scenario to come to pass. So globalization has been the major theme in the past three decades and was often seen as the solution that brings people together. But instead, we see that the advanced societies have regressed. Can these problems be mitigated if we will be able to manage the current crisis and move humanity to another period of peace? Well, you know, geopolitics and globalization have always been, have been very widely misunderstood in the sense that the notion that globalization is a purely positive force for bringing people together and fostering international cooperation was always something of a false caricature. 
the way I've always defined it as two sides of the same coin. And the reason we have globalization at all is because of imperialism. And imperialism, of course, is a geopolitical enterprise that can be highly divisive. So I've always been of the view that globalization serves geopolitical interests, even if it does result in public goods. And that's a more accurate way of explaining what's happening right now. But when it comes to migration, we don't have a global migration policy. We don't have a global diplomatic accord. And so you will witness the migration flows and movements happen very much along bilateral corridors and pairs of countries that have established certain patterns of relations and trust with each other. Or they may simply border each other and people may be spilling over those borders in an uncontrolled fashion. But of course, for human mobility, geography and geographic gravity is very, very uh, powerful. So will there be, when you say, you know, will we uh, reach a new era of peace? There are places that will manage their economic ties and their migratory patterns in a peaceful way. And you can imagine Europe, in fact, doing that. And you can imagine North America doing that very well because it happens to be a continent of geopolitical peace. But there are other parts of the world where you could not imagine that going well, or regions like Africa, like Latin America, like West Asia. If you think about Latin America, it's already the probably per capita the most violent region of the world in terms of homicides you have very not warlike but hostile relations between neighbors and venezuela is already one of the largest sources of uh, refugees in the world you can imagine african migration being uncontrolled you can imagine west asia so for example middle eastern countries uh, iraq syria iran where the climate where climate change is rendering them increasingly unlivable and scorching there will be refugee flows out of those countries. And of course, the destination countries like Turkey are not equipped to handle them. Turkey is already the host of the largest number of refugees in the entire world. So I don't think there is, just by looking at those few examples, that brief tour du monde, right? There is really no global answer to this question. There are prepared regions that will make the most of it. And then there are regions that are thoroughly unprepared. What happens to the southern continents from India, Australia to even South America? Well, so the south, the literal geographical south, not the kind of Cold War, uh, you know, understanding of the south that includes some countries that are quite that are literally north like uh, India. But geography, and this is very much a book about geography, matters intensely because the populations of South America and of Africa are quite isolated, right? It is very difficult, literally difficult, to escape those continents. Whereas the people of India, because their climate circumstances are as bad or worse than most of Africa, but because they have the geographical good fortune to be connected to the Eurasian landmass, their people are far more mobile, even though they have fairly hostile relations with some of their neighbors. And one of the forecasts that I make in the book is that the Indian diaspora will actually become much larger than the Chinese diaspora in the years ahead. Now, this is a very big statement, Bernard. I mean, today, the Chinese diaspora is by far the largest in the world. But if you simply look at, the, at China's aging population, 
the fact that many Chinese are going back to China, the fact that, of course, given the geopolitical relations, there's tensions between China and many parts of the world. And you look at India, by contrast, which is much younger demographically, where you have English trained or English speaking population that is skilled in uh, construction, in healthcare, in IT, precisely the sectors of the greatest labor shortages in the Western world. And the fact that India is a geopolitical ally of Western countries, um, you have a very different arrangement facing the Indian diaspora than the Chinese diaspora. So one of the things I've been looking at is the rise of the South Asian populations all across the world. And Europe is starting to favor importing South Asians, particularly in IT. Canada, in some years, imports more professional, skilled Indians than the United States does. So I predict that you will have at least 40 or 50 million members of the Indian diaspora within 10 to 15 years. Then what will happen to the Asia-Pacific regions in this current trajectory and the talent flow specifically, say, China, Japan, Korea, and even Southeast Asia as well? Right. Great question. Asia is so vast, the population so large, that it's hard to generalize. But you have identified the correct sub-regions that we need to be focusing on beyond South Asia uh, that I just discussed. So China is such an interesting case because you have a declining population that's still very large. You still have 700 million people below the median age. And therefore, you might say that China has more young people than all of Europe has people. So we really shouldn't generalize about China and say that it is all aging because, of course, it is not at all the case. They do have a very high dependency ratio and it is almost as severe as that of Japan, but uh, with a much larger population. So what you're starting to see in China is that they are, as I mentioned before, competing to import labor. They are bringing in Filipinos, Indonesians, Burmese, Vietnamese, and other poorer populations to fill those labor shortages, particularly in the elderly care and other kind of services sectors. So few people are aware that the world's largest country by population is importing people, uh, but that's precisely what's happening. On the other hand, in the labor market or in terms of labor productivity, they're going great guns because they've been automating so rapidly that they've maintained high output and very strong exports. But I do foresee more circulation around East Asia and the Pacific. And climate change will be one factor, of course, because the largest number of people in the world that are exposed to climate change are here in Asia. You will have coastal cities that will have to be abandoned. You will have floods from which people have to flee. There are droughts in many parts of Asia and so on and so forth. So you'll have climate migrations. You'll have political refugee flows, such as we've had obviously out of Myanmar. And you'll have the flows of labor migrants. Now, ASEAN citizens moving around within ASEAN already constitutes one of the largest inter-intra-regional migrant flows in the world, specifically Indonesians. And I foresee the number of outbound Indonesians growing. Uh, now we have all of the institutional underpinnings like ASEAN and the ASEAN economic community and the free labor mobility agreements and so forth. All of these things will facilitate the growing fluidity of people within ASEAN, which I think, again, will be a very positive trend overall for our economies. When talent meets opportunity, migration will occur. What does it mean for the expat today with lockdowns and rising tensions with local populace, even in expat-friendly countries from Dubai to Singapore? 
Well, the first thing is to take that statement at face value because, you know, you quoted the correct part, you know, where talent meets opportunity, migration will occur. And it's a reminder that even during the lockdown, people were moving, right? They were moving in search of sunny weather and fresh air and low tax lower cost of living, to enjoy remote work, even moving abroad. Bali has rebranded itself Silicon Bali. There's tons of Aussies and Brits and Americans and Europeans who have moved there during the pandemic. Uh, if you look at Dubai and its golden visa program, I was in Dubai literally a few weeks ago, and it's incredible how it's heaving and pulsing with young energy because of the fact that they've been doling out these nomad visas to pretty much any young person who will come and work for a startup that's either local or foreign. So places that capitalize on the youth desire to be mobile and to be in a liberal cultural environment and to have an affordable cost of living is you know, one of the really very significant demographic population trends in the world. So really to directly answer your question, if you could boil down the thesis of this book minus climate change to one sentence, I would say that countries that are attracting young people are the winners and countries that are losing young people are the losers. And you can actually boil down the future and your forecasts about the winning and losing societies of the 21st century to that single pair of sentences. And the reason that that would not have been true in the past, but is true today, is a very novel twist on our demographics, because in the past, we were living in a world where the world population was increasing exponentially. In the 20th century, the world population grew from 2 million in 1920 to 4 million to 8 million, billion, sorry, 8 billion, right? We, we expanded to 8 billion people over the span of just 80 years. But now the world population has plateaued and our children are not having children. So it ha it, demographics becomes a zero-sum game. Whereas in the past, you could always count on a regeneration and expansion of your population. The next generation would be larger than the one before. That's no longer true, even in many developing countries. So when Russia loses a Russian, there is no Russian being born to replace that Russian. You've lost a taxpayer, you've lost a student, you've lost an entrepreneur, you've lost a bureaucrat, you've lost a business person, you've lost a, you know, a homeowner. And the same is true pretty much across the entire Western world. The entire Northern Hemisphere is depopulating to such an extent that demographics is literally zero sum. So I am looking very closely at precisely how young people are voting with their feet and making judgments in many ways about their future on the basis of that single factor. Is there hope for a global passport that allows talent to be anywhere? There is great hope. And this is one of these orthogonal trends that I think will really kick in after the pandemic, because thanks to the QR code that we now have to certify our vaccinations, you do now have a digital a verified document that is transferable and recognized around the world that is not a stamp inside your passport. It isn't the only thing you need to travel, but everything else that you need to travel can also be communicated in such a fashion. So you can have your travel history, your financial records, your criminal records, your, um, uh, your, your itineraries, everything, your educational certifications on a blockchain. And you can allow access 
at the time that is needed to any government that you, you to whom you are applying for a visa to see that information and issue you on an app on your phone a permission to enter that country. So we can digitize the entire passport process and have passports be apps. And I absolutely believe that that is the direction that we are going because of the pandemic. So we will have gone from such a severe lockdown that we've been in now to this situation of greater fluidity and technologically enabled fluidity of people. And I think that is precisely what comes next. What are your thoughts on remote work? Given that the COVID-19 pandemic have accelerated the adoption of digital technologies such as Zoom. I'm very bullish on remote work because we had the capacity, the digital capacity for remote work before the pandemic, but we did not have the corporate culture to accept it and embrace it. Now we have both. Now we have a massive expansion of bandwidth and 5G and everyone getting fiber installed in their homes and Starlink and so on and so on. So we have a capacity growing at breakneck speed. The number of fiber optic internet cables being laid on the ocean floor is one of the most significant categories and, and areas of infrastructure investment in the world today. And we also have the cultural adaptation where not only individuals and especially the entire young generation of the world preferring to choose where they live and prioritizing that over whom they work for and running away from companies that require them to be in one space. And therefore, the companies themselves are adapting to that. And you have many companies that are embracing remote first and being cloud native companies. So I'm very, very bullish on remote work and therefore the potential that it unlocks for physical mobility. That comes back to the question which I usually ask you first in every interview we have done before. What inspire you to write the book? What are the key themes and main takeaways which you want the reader to get out of the book? It is a great question. Well, I felt it was time to write a sequel to Connectography. And Connectography was about functional geography, the physical geography of our infrastructure and the impact that has on geopolitics, economics, and global civilization as a whole. And if, as you quoted before, if the thesis was connectivity is destiny, I wanted to answer the question, well, what will we do with all of this connectivity? How will we use it? And the answer, of course, is that connectivity enables mobility. So if connectivity is destiny, it logically follows that mobility is destiny. And in this book, it's actually not just about the physical mobility of people. It's about the mobility of everything. It's about the mobility of people, of goods, of capital, of data, of ideas. Everything is becoming more mobile, actually. And that's the grander thesis. But my strongest, deepest motivation is geographical. And going back to the functional geography from the Connectography book, that is one of four layers of geography. The second layer is our human geography, so the geography of us, our distribution around the world. The third layer is, of course, our political geography, the geography of states and borders. And the fourth layer is natural geography, a geography of our resources and our ecosystems. Now, what really struck me as I began to organize the ideas for this book is that these four geographies are terribly, terribly misaligned. And I think this is the greatest problem afflicting human civilization today, is that there is a misalignment of the geography of resources, 
the geography of borders, the geography of infrastructure, and the geography of people. And what we are struggling to do every day as a civilization is to properly align these geographies, to move people to where the resources are so they can live and thrive, to move technologies to people where they need them the most, where the consumers are, where the demand is, where the need is to survive if you are not going to be able to move through acquiring new technologies. So the solution to the misalignment of our geographies is either to move people to resources or technologies to people. And that's what I want people to take away. If you want to portray yourself or be an agent of change, ask yourself, am I moving people to a better place or am I moving good technologies to people where they need them? If you are not doing one of those two things, you're not really part of the solution as far as this book is concerned. That sounds like a very good point to end. And of course, there will be another time I'm going to be reading your next book. So in closing, Parag, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Well, I've been inspired by traveling again. So I just want to encourage everyone to not, be, to not despair about uh, you know, the lockdown, but to, but to go back and seize those opportunities. And, and remember, what, as a traveler myself, you know, what's always inspired me is the difference, the gap between what people say about a place and what you will read on Twitter or wherever versus the firsthand experience of being there. And, you know, being in, uh, you know, what people describe so sardonically as post-Brexit London was actually a thoroughly lively experience. You know, I have never seen so many young people gathered in London precisely because their immigration policy has changed radically since Brexit and people don't talk about it. But if you go to London right now, you will see it. And those are the kinds of experiences that I savor is when reality contradicts perception and perception, you know, should never have been trusted anyway because it was misinformed and misguided. So the sensory experience of travel is the one, the moment, uh, the, the feeling, the sensation that I absolutely savor the most. And I'm, I'm on a real high right now, having returned from some travels and I'm looking forward to the next ones. And how can my audience find you? Well, I'm at uh, paragkhanna.com, P-A-R-A-G-K-H-A-N-N-A, and Future Map, Climate Alpha, and books on Amazon and everywhere else, and uh, Twitter at paragkhanna. And you can Google us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on all podcast platforms and all social media tools out there. And of course, if you have a rating on iTunes, please give us a five star and of course, give us your feedback. And once again, Opera, many thanks for coming on the show and sharing the tenets of your new book. And I look forward to having dinner and also a conversation again sometime in the future. I can't wait. Thanks so much, Bernard. Run it, run it, run it.